following. We're going to go into Acts chapter 22. Uh, so um, listen and pay attention and, and follow along and, and let's hear what God's word has to say to us today. Acts 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, 
well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Help us uh, by your Holy Spirit, through your power, open our ears, open our eyes, open our uh, wills, open us up to to receive your word, to understand it, to respond as you would have us to respond as as your Christians this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Just want to ask you, what is a Christian? Describe a typical Christian. What's a typical Christian? You might even say a stereotypical Christian. What is a Christian? Um, You'd think that would be pretty easy, but it gets kind of difficult for people to describe and define a Christian. We've got different people describing Christians in the world today. How does the world describe a Christian? This world that we live in, as it gets more and more um, away in our country at least, and in other countries, away from some biblical roots that were there in our constitutions and places like that. How does the world describe a Christian? Many in the world would use words like this. Homophobe. Anti-science. Judgmental, hypocritical. Anti-fun. No fun. 
the American Taliban. Haters. That's the way that we are seen by some in the outside. Not by all, thankfully, but by some. An influential group uh, sees Christianity as that way and Christians as that way. I would say that Christians are not anything that starts with a people group and ends with the word phobe. What is phobia? Think about it and think about how that word is misused and, and how that's just a name that is called of Christians. Phobia is a type of anxiety disorder defined by persistent and excessive fear of an object or situation. Phobias typically result in a rapid onset of fear and are present for more than six months. Those affected will go to great lengths to avoid the situation or object to a degree greater than the actual danger posed. If the object or situation cannot be avoided, they experience significant distress. Other symptoms can include fainting, which may occur in blood or injury phobia, and panic attacks, which are often found in agoraphobia. So somebody says, you're a homophobe, or you're a transphobe, or you're a thisphobe, or you're a thatphobe. That's not what you are, necessarily. Very few people have a phobia. That's name-calling. That's disparaging. To say that according to Scripture, an action is morally wrong does not automatically make a person a phobe. How about anti-science? The biblical position is pro-science. A description of Christians from the world, they're anti-science. They're against the science. They don't believe in science. Christians believe that God is the creator of all and a belief that God made everything, that everything is good that he made is not anti-science, that's pro-science. And we understand that the, the, the great scientists in the early days loved nature and they studied and they explored because they wanted to see this place that God made. How did God do that? Why did God do that? And they gave their glory to God the creator. It's not anti-science. To have a difference of opinion about how things got here is not in the realm of science at all. I agree with that person who wrote that book and said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Christians can be characterized by non-Christians as anti-science. Hypocritical? That's a sin that everyone struggles with, certainly. The governor who mandated vaccines, quote-unquote, for 12 years old and up, and yet, turns out his 12-year-old daughter hasn't gotten the vaccine yet. The former president who advocates uh, distancing and masking and everybody comes and pictures get out and all these famous people come and they do everything that the laws are against doing. And then the, their friends in the media say, yeah, but they're sophisticated, so they don't have to follow the same rules. And yet, Christians are the ones called hypocritical. Think about it, on and on and on and on and on. The mayor of one big city who was going to initiate a, a mask mandate, but who waited two days so she could officiate it and have a big wedding party first. And then when that wedding was over, then it went into effect. Self-admitted person who told noble lies who went to a baseball game and threw out a first pitch, and there he is sitting there with his mask off, talking to somebody else. 
saying that. So what, what we're saying is you can be called that. Christians are called these types of things by people. And I just want to say, if a racist calls you a racist, if a self-righteous hypocrite calls you a self-righteous hypocrite, if some phobe calls you a phobe, if some science denier calls you a science denier, if a Republican calls you a Democrat or a Democrat calls you a Republican, don't respond with the name-calling. There's that classic playground response. I know you are, but what am I? You can say that. That's not the best. There's the one mom tried to teach me. Uh, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But I think the best is to say it takes one to know one. Yeah, we are sinners. We are everything. There's no name that somebody could call you in a disparaging way that doesn't even come close to to who, who we are as sinners and say, yeah, you know, I'm worse than that. And so are you. Salvation is there for those who repent of that. And Jesus paid for those sins. And bring people to the cross and don't respond in kind. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? That's what the world says. Uh, Well, there's other people that want to define Christians. Um, I I read this article this week. I sent it to to one of you because I knew you would appreciate it too and and, and did. Christians stereotype what Christians are supposed to be. This is an article about the, what they call the Christian industrial complex and trying to make all the Christians uh, buy their box of, uh, of teachings for 100 bucks to have a video of a teacher and a teacher's guide. It costs them $10 to make, but each church can pay 100 bucks for it and buy all the books that go along with it. And, and, and they market these things. Typical Christian. Here's Christian radio. A typical description that Christian radio gave for their typical listener. The writer is talking about how music started out, uh, Christian music started out as Christian music, wanting to see lives change and people just expressing themselves. Then it went on to become important in an industry. And a percentage point in market share can mean hundreds and, and of millions of dollars. He said the stakes became huge and success was no longer measured the way that way it used to be in changed lives. For one thing, many of the record labels were no longer owned by Christians, but by equity funds or the public markets. The new measurements for many of these companies were earnings per share and market share points. Tens of millions of dollars could be made or lost based on a single percentage point difference, more or less, in the ratings. That's when Christian Radio decided that a mythical young housewife named Becky was its target customer. If you walked into a top Christian radio station in the 1990s, and to a certain extent even today, the staff will know Becky, though they may have a different name for her at their station, an ironic and furtive attempt to make Becky their own. Becky is the one person they want to listen Every little thing the station does is done with Becky in mind. We call her Debbie, but it's the same idea, said Joe Pagula, who at the time I interviewed him was the station manager at one of the top Christian stations in the country and a finalist in Gospel Music Association's Station of the Year category. He says, for years our target was the 25 to 45-year-old female, Paulo said, but no one is 25 to 44 years old. 
either 25 or 44. And your tastes and lifestyles are very different depending on whether you're one or the other. Paulo knows exactly who Becky is and what she cares about. She's 35 years old, he says. She has two kids. She drives a minivan and is married, but her marriage is not all that she dreamed it would be. She goes to church pretty regularly, but not every Sunday. She's mostly a stay-at-home mom, but she may work a few hours a week or may work seasonal jobs at different times of the year to bring a few extra dollars into the household. Paulo also knows what Becky thinks. She cares about issues that affect her kids, he says. Food, education, health, family, leisure time activities. Paulo said everything a station puts on the air must pass this test. Will Becky care? And it went on to say, when marketers market evangelical Christianity a certain way, all of a sudden, that has sway even over how churches worship. If they want Becky to listen to it, and they've talked about how they drop the news, they drop controversial things because that, that prototype that they think listens. And then everybody hears those songs, they sing those songs, they influence what's sung in church, and it could be doctrinally right, it could be doctrinally nebulous, it could be doctrinally wrong, but everybody wants to hear it, and there's a market for that. What happens when a church falls victim to marketing trends? What's a Christian? What's a stereotypical Christian? What does a Christian look like? That's what we're asking this morning. We saw how the world uh, sees a Christian. Some in the world see the Christian. We see how the industry that wants to, us to buy their, their Christian stuff sees a Christian and how it's supposed to be. What's a Christian? What's a Christian? Dad and mom were on the road. My dad was always this way. Um, dad... When we were on the road, on vacation as kids, if we had to travel on a Sunday, he took us to church. Independent Baptist, he kind of found he was, he was not super articulate, didn't care about all, he didn't have to be a tight reform thing, it didn't have to be a tight Baptist-y thing, but a gospel church, and he wanted to be there and worship God on a Sunday because that's what Christians do, he thought. So he and mom were on the road by themselves. I guess the kids were out and they were doing the, the motorhome tour and it was a Sunday. And dad, according to habit, found a church that he thought would be kind of close, uh, gospel preaching, go worship with God's people on a Sunday and then get on the road. Seemed like a good one. And he went in it was a little loud for their comfort zone because, you know, they're eh, getting up there. And there's a certain style and all that. And he walked in, it was kind of loud, but he said, he said we, could, we could stay for that. Now, somebody's described my dad as like the dad on the wonder years, if, if that helps you. Dad's a retired state trooper, and he's just a, just a kind of a matter-of-fact Iowa guy. He said, and we were there worshiping, and it was kind of, we looked at each other, and, and we're going to stay, we're going to hear the sermon, we're going to open our God's word, we're going to pray, we're going to be part of that. He says, but then, he says, when the woman in front of me opened her purse and pulled out a tambourine and started banging on her rear end and dancing around. He said, that was it. He said, we couldn't do that. Um, and and they, they had to leave. He said, that was hurting our, our, our ability to worship. And I thought about him as he was telling me about that in his way, not trying to be funny, but being very funny as he described it. And I thought about that old song, Love Shack, and thought about everybody's 
moving, everybody's grooving, and the whole shack shimmies around and around. And I thought of Dad uh, in a younger day saying, I've got me a Chrysler that seats about 20, so come on and bring your jukebox money. That's not my dad. Um, so who's a Christian? Those people? My dad? Is he the, the definition of a Christian? Us? Understand that Christianity is, is bigger than America. God's church is around the world. Uh, How many different people groups are there? Who's a Christian? What constitutes a Christian? What's the common denominator of a Christian? If you call yourself a a, a Christian yourself, then it's probably a good thing to think about these things, to think about who I am and what I've committed to. Stereotypical Christian. So we've seen how different people Stereotype Christians. Now let's look at this Christian in the Bible, Paul. What about him? As we get an answer to that question, we consider him, is Paul a stereotypical Christian? We see three things about Paul this morning. And I want us to think of him as a called Christian. Think about ourselves and how we evaluate Christianity and who we are as Christians. Uh, First of all, Paul, and I called him a Renaissance man. He was, he was, boy, he was something. Think of Paul the Jew and Paul the Roman. Paul, he was both global and he was local. He was a citizen of the world, traveled around the world. He knew people from all over. Yet at the same time, he was a Jew's Jew. We find Paul in this text, he's in the temple. Remember last week, he, did, he agreed to go into the temple and have these purification rites done. And while he was there, it was about, about finished for him. It says, while the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, his old friends that always seemed to follow him around and stir things up, saw him there and they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Paul was welcome in the temple. Paul was welcome as a Jewish man in that temple. He lived there. He knew that place. He had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was at home in that temple. He walked in. He knew why everything was done and what ways it was done. And he belonged there as much as anybody, as a Jewish man, as a Jew's Jew. The problem with his enemies wasn't that he was there as much as they thought that he brought a friend there. Uh, Verses 27 through 29 Seven days were almost completed. They saw him. They said, he's a bad guy. He's teaching. It says he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they lied. They assumed the worst, which is what we all can do if we're not careful. And the lies were effective. And by these lies, it says, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Lies can be effective. Churchill said one time, or he's attributed to saying that A lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can put its pants on. Lies are effective. You see this all the time. 
uh, in our in our day. You'd think with all of the media, all the things we have, that there'd be more truth. Uh, people say, no, there's more lies, there's more confusion. Uh, people will publish a story. They'll get people riled up and, and retweet and republish and republish, and then, then they retract it, but by the time they retract it, the damage is done. That's what Jonathan Swift said about lies. He said, besides, as the vilest writer has his readers, so the greatest liar has his believers. And it often happens that if a lie be believed only for an hour, it has done its work, and there's no farther occasion for it. Falsehood flies, and the truth comes limping after it, so that when men come to be undeceived, it's too late. The jest is over, and the tale has had its effect. Oh, they're whipping people on their horses. No, wait, they don't have whips. Well, they're hitting them with the reins as if they were whips. No, they're twirling. Well, maybe they're doing that, but it looked like it. And so we can vilify. Oh, well, we were wrong, they say, buried in the papers two weeks later, 20 pages in. Christianity is about truth, not about lies. They lied about Paul, and they stirred people up, and they're beating him. He's at home in the temple belongs there as a Jewish man. There was a gate to go into the Holy of Holies. And they've uh, said, they've dug up in the last century or so, about a century and a half ago, they found uh, the script that was there in the temple. And there was a place where Gentiles could go. But there are signs, warning signs, like uh, you see on some people's houses. (laughs) No trespassing. (laughs) Uh, What will happen if you trespass? (laughs) Try it and find out. Uh, the, the signs are kind of funny in, in that they say that. Uh, you Gentiles are responsible for your own death if you go beyond this point. Paul, being at home in the Jewish world, could go there. Paul also at home enough in the world as a Roman citizen belonged there to where they couldn't even tie him up and whip him without punishment to themselves because he was a citizen of Rome. born in Tarsus, highly educated in Jerusalem. He was well-versed in both. He was a Jew and a Gentile at the same time, if there was such a thing. People have talked about um, this Jew-Gentile divide in, in Scripture, in this part of Scripture. And they're saying, yes, it is racial. It is Jew and Gentile. But also, when it comes to Christianity, when Christians are, are coming and the church is forming, it's not just Jew and Gentile. You could divide it into the religious and the irreligious. I think Tim Keller does that very well. Uh, people come to the Lord with their scriptures, with having grown up in churches, having known the creeds, having known some things and heard some things. And they are still not believers, but God uses all those things that they heard and learned, and they come to Christ. The Jewish people had the scriptures. They had the truth. They even believed in the truth. They were one God to the point where the Romans would call them atheists because they didn't believe in a multitude of gods. They believed in one. They still needed to get saved. They still needed to see that those scriptures were pointing to who Jesus was. And the religious people were coming to the Lord. And the irreligious, the people for whom it was brand new, were forsaking their idols. And they were saying, what is this about the scripture? And they were coming to the Lord. It was religious and irreligious. And Paul could, could thread both. 
Paul was a leader. He was schooled in the religious part of it. But how gifted was he in bringing the non-believers to Christ? He was well-versed in both. Um, Not pagan as intrinsically evil, but secular. He was sacred and secular. I've got a CD at home sometimes that I like to listen to. Johannes Brahms, it's songs... Sacred and profane is the translate. Well, it's not profane. It's not profanity. You don't hear somebody like singing a bunch of profanity in German or something that you can't understand. Sacred and profane meaning sacred and secular. It's, it's that. And he was well-versed in both. Think of somebody like a C.S. Lewis who was schooled in the, the northern and Nordic mythologies and things. And when he got saved and God putting that together and him being able to talk to Christians and non-Christians alike. This was Paul, born in Tarsus, highly educated in Jerusalem, it says in verses 37 through 23. He's talking about that. Then you think about Paul also as a Renaissance man, able to speak. He's talking. They're carrying him away. They've come down and rescued him from getting killed. He speaks to the the, the Roman uh, centurion, the, the guy who's carrying him away. He says, can I address the crowd? And the guy goes, what, you're talking to me in Greek? I thought you were the Egyptian who, who did this. And there's in history an Egyptian who, who uh, caused some trouble and, and, and caused a lot of death, and he got away, and they thought that maybe he was him come back to stir up more trouble. He can speak Greek. He goes to speak to the crowd to quiet them down, and it says at the very start of chapter 22, he calmed them down. But when they heard him speaking in their own language, in the Hebrew language, they listened and got even more attentive. He was a man who could speak both cultures. He could speak the language of the very religious, not just even the language language, but even when he's talking on Mars Hill. He can take the message of the gospel and adapt it to that that more secular culture and even speak with illustrations and with things that they understand. He's fluent in speech with the people of the world. He was effective with small groups. He was effective with big crowds. This was a Renaissance man. He related to their current zeal. I loved how he said this. He said, um, when when he talked to the people, and you can see in chapter 22, he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And then this phrase, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Uh, They were trying to tear him limb from limb and kill him. And yet he says, I understand even what motivates you. I know where you're at. Uh, We have an ability because we're human beings. And when we cry... The same composition of our tears is the same composition of people who don't know. There's there's ways we can understand. We hurt. When Jesus said, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, uh, that's a great command. That's the empathy that he calls us to. We don't harden our hearts. And Paul didn't harden his heart here. He could speak and he could understand I know your zeal. I can relate to your zeal. Your zeal reminds me of my zeal, he said. I asked this question of myself. 
Can you still relate to the actions of the ungodly? Your attitudes and actions might be foreign to them. They may call you all those names, but can you still relate to them? Your attitudes and actions might be foreign to them, but theirs are not to you, and this will help keep you from censoriousness. Paul didn't stop and try to call down lightning from heaven to consume them and rush them into hell. When he was being carried up and and killed, he said, can I stop and speak to them? What did he say? He started to share the gospel. He told what God had done in the life. He said, I can understand your zeal. I'm one of you. Later on, he would say, my heart and my zeal in Romans is is for, for, for them that they would be saved. God had given him a different spirit. Prior to this, he had wanted his enemies to be dead. A Christian, as we say, what is a Christian? A Christian looks at the people who look on on them in a bad way and says, I want them to be made alive. I want their salvation. What did Jesus say on the cross? One of the seven sayings that is recorded. There might have been more, quite likely there there were more. We don't know that for sure. But the seven that God wanted us to see that are in Scripture spread out through the Gospels, one of those is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What did Stephen say as he was being killed and Paul was the one guarding the coats? Father, don't hold this sin against them. And boy, that's something that only God can put in our hearts because we're naturally prone to rebellion and to fight back. Don't have that attitude. God will help you to not have that. He was a Jew's Jew. He was a citizen of Rome and knew his rights as a citizen. We won't go deep into that last passage, but when they finally pulled him away, they put him on the rack. We're going to find out who you are. Uh, All the crowd is confused. They're just angry. They don't even know why, and it's just a ball of confusion, and so they pulled him in, spread him out, tied him up. He had two chains on him, and they were going to whip it out of him. But he knew his rights in the world. And because he had those rights, he insisted on those rights. I think just even ourselves, praise God for where you get to live and where you've been able to live. And maybe it's all going to go away. Maybe those freedoms, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech, the freedoms that we have, maybe they go away. But right now we have them. And just Paul used and he declared his rights. <laughs> Don't whip me. <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen. In the end, the Roman government killed him. Uh, but at that point in time, he knew his rights and he belonged in the temple, but he also belonged as a Roman citizen to have the rights that were there by that temporary government for him. He was a Jew's Jew who was a citizen. Knew his rights as a citizen. Uh, this was Paul. You could say he was a citizen of, of Judea and a citizen of, of Rome. And you could also say because he knew his way around the world, he was as Greek as, as the, the Greekest people were around there. He, was a, he, he had all of those things. He was a Renaissance man. He was also an academic and a man of action. He's giving his testimony. He goes, I'm the Jew. I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You you could look Gamaliel up and and see uh, that was credentialed. Uh, I was an Ivy Leaguer, he might say. I was in one of your best schools. 
I was strictly according to the law. I was zealous for God as you are. And what did I do? I didn't just make it academic and I didn't just write theories about, about my belief. I acted on them. How did he act on them as a non-believer? I persecuted this way, this Christianity to the death. I was binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. They were afraid of him if they were Christians. He wasn't just a man of intellect. He put the intellect and the action behind it and he was consistent with himself. This new cult, as he called it, is a threat to our way of thinking. And I'm going to exterminate that, those people. He says, from them, from the high priest, I delivered letters, received letters to the brothers. I journeyed to Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. It wasn't just intellectual. It was action. He did things. Then we see him as we ask ourselves, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? I'm a Christian. What is a Christian? What, what is that? We see Paul as the enemy of God who became the ambassador for God. And that's in that portion of chapter 22. You think about Paul as a communicator with others. He could talk one-on-one. He could have a cup of coffee and, and, and get the point across. He could address a crowd and get the point across. He was a communicator. Think of the greatest communication that he had. The direct communication with God. He said, I'm an apostle. I'm one born out of time. And what do we see about his communication with God as we ask ourselves, who am I as a Christian? Well, you see, first of all, that God took the initiative. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Was he predisposed? As I was traveling and I was having second thoughts about what I did because that woman that was ripped from her kids and and I had her her put to death for being a Christian and I started to have a guilt feeling about that and then I read this little booklet from somebody. No, he wasn't. He was on his way to do his job. He didn't seek God. He was doing God's work, he felt. God sought him. Here comes the light, and it's on him. Here comes the voice. He says the other people couldn't hear and understand the voice. I understood the voice, and my communication was direct with God. God gave the conversion. God said to him, the voice says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What are the two elements that are involved there in that verse? The two things that are absolutely necessary for anybody to become a Christian. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. You are doing wrong because you're persecuting me. And there was a conviction that was there. God told him, This is not right. You think it's right. It's not. It's sin. And who am I? I am Jesus. Salvation cannot come. I've said this before. Salvation can't come. If all you had, you say, I'm halfway there. Well, you're not really. But I have one of the two elements. I have repentance. 
I just don't have faith. What will that get you? I'll get you a miserable, beat up yourself, trying to uh, do good enough and all that, and you'll, you'll, you'll feel sorry, you'll hate yourself, and you'll, you'll look for validation in the wrong places. Repentance but no faith. Um, that's a miserable way to live. What if you had faith but no repentance? Who can come to the Lord unless they know that they are in need of the Lord, in need of a Savior? And God gave him both of those things. God was the one who converted him. And then God gave him a job to do. The goal wasn't just to save him and stop him from sinning and leave those poor Christians alone. The job, the, it wasn't just to keep him from, from those sins that he was doing. It was a job for him to do that was valid and worthwhile in God's kingdom. It's part of becoming a Christian. Stop sinning, but part of becoming a Christian is that, that last part of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's the verse 10 that Paul wrote. Not only are you saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, but you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He saved you with something to do that matters kingdom-wise. And the job that God gave him to do was in conjunction with other Christians who were also called to do what God had for them, specific works. This is where the church comes in. There had to be people to lead him by the hand. That was God's work. There had to be Ananias waiting there to say, receive your sight. There had to be people come along and teach him. There had to be people go with him and support. Uh, He was not by himself as a Christian. What is a Christian then? Not a lone ranger doing his own thing, setting up his own ministry, naming his own uh, stuff after himself, but part of God's church working together as God equips and calls. He had further communication from God. As he's telling his story, right before it, it ends, he says, when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I went into a trance, and I saw him, God, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by. And God is talking to him, and God is giving protection. How does God treat his Christians? With the protection that they need as they need it. Paul could later say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he got his perspective on living and dying. A Christian, what is a Christian? One who's got the healthy balance and the perspective on this life and the life to come. And lastly, about Paul, before we wrap it up. Notice and see that becoming a friend of God invited enmity of the world. Verses 22 through 24, as he's telling that story. It says, up to this word, as soon as he said in verse 21, God said to me, go for I will send you to the Gentiles. They'd quieted down. He was talking in their language. They were trying to get to the bottom of it. They're all listening. All of a sudden he says, and God said, you go and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Their racism erupted. All of a sudden, 
That's it. We're not going to hear him anymore. This is for us and us only. And it says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting. They were throwing off their cloaks. They were (laughs) flinging dust into the air, which I don't know what we would do. Maybe that's the same as as, uh, hand gestures we would make or something like that. But they were demonstrating they wanted him dead for daring to say that God told him this is for the Gentiles. The reason I had Rick read that this morning is when God called Abram, we had this in our kids' uh, Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, God said, I'm going to make you a light, a blessing to the nations, to the Gentiles. I will say it again. Racism is not coming from Christians. Heard an interesting podcast a couple weeks ago. And a couple people who I respect were talking about this. And they said back in the old days when there was this blatant racism and this divide from the, you know, from the intellectual sector, the ones writing the books, whether it's Harriet Beecher Stowe or all of it, uh, there was, they kind of helped lead uh, us commoners out of racism. But now you look at the rank and file It's not here where we live. Down at Six Flags a couple years ago with Paula and the kids, and I'm watching all these school kids come, and boy, they weren't segregating off. Boy, everybody was mixed. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was like a sports team, and it was blacks and whites, and they were hopping on the roller coaster together, and they were laughing and talking. And this podcast, these people said, you look at how even... This, these self-appointed intellectuals, when they start naming their kids' names and then watch how those names become popular, how that drifts down and we all imitate. And, and their, their theory was this. The racism that we're seeing that we have to fight against as Christians is, is coming from these intellectuals. They're the ones saying, oh, blacks are this, whites are this, uh, this theory, this, that, that, the other thing, here's rewriting of history. They're the ones because they're bored because now the commoners uh, got that message and these are the children's children of the ones who, who gave us a good message. Fight that. The Bible talks about wisdom and the world's wisdom. And our wisdom is not the world's wisdom. Uh, our wisdom has got to be biblical wisdom. And with the Holy Spirit, in us, we can get that. And in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no bond or free. In other words, economic status does not separate us. And as soon as Paul said, Christianity is for all races, they lost it. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And becoming a friend of God invited enmity of the world. And we have religious racists in our culture trying to divide us. Their racism, their religion is not Christianity. It's a kind of a secular humanism and it's kind of a a keep patting my pockets and and keep me uh, as the great savior. And our religious racists in our culture don't like Christians very well. And the anger that came because Paul was spreading good news about Jesus to all people. He taken to the Gentiles, and they called Paul a liar. God would never do that. God wanted us, 
us to be us and a little bit better than the rest. Okay, so I've hinted at some things. And you've got some answers as you've interacted on what's a Christian. Stereotypical Christian. Paul was a Jew and a Roman with a Greek outlook. Are we Christians? Are we Jews, Greeks, and Romans? Yes, some like Paul might be several of these at the same time. But the church is made up of all of us. We're coming from religion. Some of us grew up in church looking at hymn books when the pastor got really boring, and then we kind of know our way around hymnals. Some of us grew up uh, totally not Christian at all, and God saved us uh, out of it. And God's put us all together. Uh, a, a, a Christian can be, uh, have any kind of a background. Salvation that God brings to people collectively is not limited to any one race and does not exclude any one race. Ultimately, there are two races, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Remember, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. And if those pagans in Adam want to divide and make people hate and resent each other based on race, or if they want people to hate themselves because of their race that they were born with, well, I'm sorry for them and I'm sad for them and I, I, I can't wait till they get saved and, and see the beauty of Christianity. It's sad, but it's not surprising. Wicked people do what wicked people do before they're saved. But those of us who are in Christ have no room for that kind of racism. And we don't even want to get bogged down in the psychobabble of this new racism that is trying to take over our country. You love everyone. You see everyone. Uh, as long as they're breathing air, uh, they are potential uh, ones that God just may be getting ready to save. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, we saw Paul as an academic and a man of action. Are we Christians, academics, and people of action? The answer is yes. Facts of salvation have been evaluated by us. They've been assented to by us. God called us as surely as he called Paul, and he gave us work to do. Third, Paul communicated with God, and on the strength of this, he communicated with people about God. What's a Christian? A Christian is one who hears God and who talks to God. Let them laugh. Let the world deride or pity, as the song said. You pray. You say, God, speak to me. God, lead me. You read your Bible. You, you pray to God for people. You, you work on that communication. God speaks, and he speaks through his word. What do we have in common if we're Christians? At one time, we were dead in our sins, active as enemies against God. Two, God saved us from our sins by revealing himself to us, giving us the gifts of repentance and faith. Three, we've been given individual jobs to do in conjunction with each other as God uses us in advancing his glory and his kingdom. Four, we have a common destination. We're going to be worshiping God together in heaven, Christians. Five, some people will hate us because of our status as citizens of God's kingdom. We do not hate them back. Wrapping it up as we go to the table. I want to say to you that the more you love God, the more you keep your position as God's son or God's daughter in the forefront of your mind, as you live as a Christian, the more you do that, you'll find that you actually enjoy the things in the world, even these lesser things, more than if you focus on those things. My little brother and I, 
talking a whole lot more, talking around sports. I'm like getting reacquainted with my youngest brother because I was, there's, there's a couple kids in between us and all that, but oh, he's, whether it's nature or nurture, we're Cardinals fans and we're Iowa Hawkeyes fans and we can't help it, okay? And so <laughs> Cardinals lose and I text, well, go Hawkeyes. <laughs> He'll go, yep, that's right. We switch to the next thing and boy, we're having fun back and forth. But you know what makes it fun? He's my family. And what makes it fun? He's not only my blood family, but he's my spiritual family. And we can enjoy these things, and it doesn't disappoint us if our team loses. We can laugh it off. We've got bigger fish to fry. We're Christians. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That's who we are whether the world wants to stereotype us that way or not. We know who we are. We're in Christ. We're blood-bought children of God. And we, in this church, are brothers and sisters together. And that's our relationship. That's our family. That's what ties us together. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us from death to life. Thank you for Jesus' perfect life. Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, second member of the Trinity, God become man, dying for us and saving us. Thank you for the eternal life that we have. It's already started even now. It doesn't start when we get to heaven. It's even now. Thank you for what we have in common. Thank you that we get to enjoy so many great lesser things in this world, even though we know it's all going to get uh, bulldozed over and done and, and, and some of the things that we've uh, thought so were so important now uh, won't be in the light of eternity, Lord, but we thank you that we get to enjoy this life, but we thank you as we look forward to life in heaven together. We thank you that we get to be Christians in your world. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So many illustrations in scripture and things about eating together and dining together and what it means to eat a meal together and how 